Blog Talk Radio. Tonight, we entails what's going on in your world and community, 
followed by a special interview with our guest today will be Brother Omari Musso, who is running for the D.C. Delegate to the U.S. House of Representatives, and he's a member of the Socialist Worker Party. Following that, like always, we would get into our thing, looking at the world, and highlight a few articles that we think may be of interest to you. So that's the order of our agenda tonight. Like always on Africa on the Moon, you know how we get started with our party. We'd like to introduce to you our political analysts and panelists for today. And we first would like to bring in Brother Anthony and welcome him to Africa on the Moon. Welcome, Brother Anthony. Uh, Thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Revolutionary greetings to you, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Our objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Thank you, Brother Jesse. Fine, Brother Anthony. We're going to bring in Brother Hackey. We'd like to welcome Brother Hackey to Africa on the Moon. Welcome. Brother Africa. Thanks for having me. My name is Haki Kamathi Mishoki, Karen on African Awareness. And, of course, you know, my thing is all about institution building. But I got to tell you, Brother Africa, uh, one of the things I find um, somewhat extraordinary, this whole relationship between propaganda and police selective killings, you know, one of the things that media does a very good job, it uh, prevents news in a way in which it doesn't um, uh, entice people to ask questions. And so this nexus between police and the propaganda wing of the of the media. It's a very, very powerful one. So in any event, I want you to check this out, something I, I wrote, something I was thinking about. Now, propaganda is an important element in maintaining wealth, dominance, and prestige. Cries of all lives matter are routinely disseminated across TV screens with the objective of fomenting as much division as possible among ethnic groups. This ploy is effective because it eliminates any understanding of the economic, political, and the social systems that demand the systematic killing of poor people by police. Implicit in this message, all lives matter, is an attempt to dismiss the disproportionate level of killings and or violence inflicted on African people by police. For purposes of propaganda, all lives matter is a perfect slogan to undermine the difficult terrain African people must navigate in the Western world. If corporate-controlled media was legitimately concerned about all lives matter, media would highlight voices proclaiming police kill poor whites also. This slogan would more succinctly define working-class whites' frustrations and the feelings they, the very real feelings they have concerning being disregarded. However, as far as promoting effective propaganda, any methodology by media that enlightens has the potential to provide clarity. Clarity is precisely what the corporate-controlled media seeks to prevent. Acknowledging poor whites are disproportionately key relative middle and upper income whites will certainly clarify the same injustices that inflict African people with respect to police violence and killings also has relevance for the lives of poor whites. In the words of Tom Newberger, a very famous journalist, information presented objectively may compel poor whites to understand they too represent the ranks of the safely murderables and as such may come to the realization that interests are intertwined with African struggles. Now, certainly one of the reasons media is not free to report stories that expose the death of police killings and violence is the socioeconomic status of victims abused and are killed by police yearly. Adolph Reed, a scholar and media critic, 
Research shows victims of police killings reside in neighborhoods with a medium income of $10,000 or less. Quote, states with the highest rate of police homicides per million of population are among the widest population in the country. States like New Mexico, Alaska, South Dakota, Arizona, Wyoming, Colorado, all have police homicide rates of an excess of 6.71 per million population, end quote. The slaughter of poor people elicits little or no response from Congress or the president. Historically, this has been the case. Lack of response from political leadership has created a precedent which signals police, the least among us, socially economically speaking, lives have no value. Increasingly, police training to professionalism is being eliminated, and police are implicitly being conditioned to see poor people as tangible threats. Obviously, in law enforcement, threat must be neutralized. And if we extrapolate, eliminating threat is a useful strategy in maintaining law and order. Sounds like a dystopian fantasy or hyperbole? Well, think again. Well, according to Address Berto Gonzalez, L.A. Sheriff Department whistleblower, the L.A. Sheriff Department employed gang initiation rules in which killing civilians is applauded. Uh, run by a ran by a group called the Executioners, this group of police officers provide entertainment for police officers who have killed civilians. These killings are significant in that they fast track the police career and demonstrate such officers have quote has what it takes, demonstrating what the officer is made of end quote. The insanity does not end there. After a civilian death, the Executioners formally convene parties for the express purpose of inking or tattooing the officer for the kill thus qualifying the officer officially as part of a murderous organization within the sheriff's department, which is highly respected. The parties in question are referred to as 998 parties and were recently held to honor the officers who killed 18-year-old Salvadorian youth in Compton, L.A. Andre Guardado was shot five times in the back in an alley. While officers alleged Guardado had weapons, forensics failed to establish that fact. Now, here's the, question, here's the paradox for the African community. Now, given the level of deprivation and poverty increasing in the society, and in fact, if you have a situation where the economy deconstructs, then that means more and more poor people become poor. Now, if cops' perception is that based upon your economic standing, uh, your, your, your quote-unquote criminality, then it seems to me that, um, you know, as society becomes more poor, that the number of people actually uh, increases. Then the propensity for the cops to see these these multitude of poor people uh, as, 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 the, as the enemy or somehow being uh, complicitous in terms of criminal activity, it seems to me it's, it creates a scenario in which the possibility of being shot or killed by the police actually increases. So the question to the African communities is reverse succinctly. Now, do you suppose, given this economic reality, do you think these relationships between the African community and police will become better or worse? So it seems to me that's a question that the African community has to ask itself in this age of COVID-19 and, and economic decay. So clearly we got our work cut out for us, and without institutions to clarify those questions, it becomes very, very difficult in terms of actually creating some, some means by which, you know, we survive in the society. So that question I pose to the African community. Thank you, Brother Aki. Let's go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. And I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. 
I bear witness that there is one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that my faith tongue is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And I would like to say free Julian Hassan. Uh, and thank you once again, Brother Africa, for allowing me to be on the show. Welcome, Brother Moses. To our listening audience, this is Africa on the Move. We're going to be in the seat, and we're going to take the heat. We're going to define it, and we're going to stand behind it. What we're going to do right now, before we go in our first segment of this program, dealing with what's going on in your world and community, and we invite you to call us in. Call in today. Let us know what's going on in your world and your community by dialing 323-679-0841. But what we're going to do right now, we're going to take a revolutionary culture break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about what's going on in your world and community with our political panelists and analysts, and you are welcome to join us. So vast, so great, the African embrace, the color of life. Universal harmony. The earth supports our conscious effort for sustained humanity. Human being, human love on a spiritual tip. So vast, so great. The African Embrace. Live beyond. Love beyond. Your skin. To where you belong. Yeah, so some 
Brother Hackies, what's going on in your world in the community? A couple of things. First, let me just give a shout-out to uh, the dance group out of the U.K. called Diversity in terms of the powerful performance they did in honor of um, the brother that was killed um, in, uh, in uh, Minnesota. Uh, and despite despite the fact that it's a very powerful performance, you got a lot of people who were very upset about it because they had the audacity to uh, dedicate the performance to George Floyd and to talk about the importance in terms of eradicating, you know, uh, police violence or killing, you know, African people. So clearly, you know, uh, the response is not what we what people would anticipate. In fact, uh, the racist was very, very upset about that. In fact, that the, the implications were very clear that African lives have no real value in the eyes of these racists in out of the UK. So clearly, you know, um, again, the shout out to this group was very, very powerful. And I encourage people to go online to check out Diversity's uh, routine. It was very, very impressive. I, I got to say, I've seen many, many uh, dance groups in my in my years, but I got to tell you, this is the most powerful. Uh, uh, um, uh, entourage of entertainers, you know, I've ever seen you know, in, in my lifetime. So clearly, you know, uh, much uh, love and respect for uh, diversity. Now, the second thing is, and I want the uh, the panelists to bear with me. I, I went a little, I got a little heavy-handed. You know, I tried to uh, make this as brief as possible. But I, but I think it's important that we understand some things, some, some some very intimate things in terms of you know how society functions, because much of what goes on is is very very subtle. And a lot of times people don't even perceive it because it is very, very subtle. And specifically, I'm referring to dog whistles. So I wrote this piece on dog whistle politics. I think, uh, you know, I think this is important that people give, you know, dog whistle politics, you know, some consideration. But in any event, now dog whistle politics defined as coded speech communicated through words or phrases is pervasive. Most of us are familiar with the Orange Menace Make America Great slogan, but how deeply do we appreciate the loaded rhetoric pertaining to such a slogan? Obviously, greatness has various connotations depending on who's defining the word. In the context of American history, greatness has always been defined as the ability to conquer or subdue by violence in order to meet a political objective. Greatness implies violence as a tool of expedience, best utilized by nativists or European cultures. The more insidious aspect of greatness implies evolving consciousness is the enemy of America, that the barbarism of the past has proved effective and therefore should continue. Perhaps when former President George Herbert Walker Bush advocated devolution, he was advocating for return to the old ways. Of course, the old ways, old ways valued a social hierarchy where the power of wealthy white men were uncontested. Now, dog whistles of the past were challenged by new ideas, new conventions that sought to increase enlightenment, thereby setting the foundation for a new paradigm. Like any system under threat, the equilibrium of the current system could only be maintained by resisting change on all levels. Resistance to change will best be facilitated by consistent messaging sounded the death knell of tradition. That response to the fail on Fox News. Fox News was established specifically for the, to function as the propaganda wing of the Republican Party. Started by Rupert Murdoch, the aim of the network is to legitimize the slogan, Make America Great Again. Of all the Fox News sycophants, ass kissers, Tucker Constance is uniquely qualified to deceive his audience. Casting blame on former President Obama for stroking racial divisions in the U.S., he conveniently sidestepped institutional racism, police assassinations of African people, or substandard schools as major contributors to racial strife in America. Clearly, his dog whistle intent is to conflate Obama, who is African, of being disloyal to U.S. Implications of his dog whistle goes deeper when he states, quote, if we're going to survive as a country, we must defeat Black Lives Matter, end quote. 
The substitute he makes expands the theme of disloyalty to include a whole group, specifically African people. Ironically, African people are the most oppressed outside the indigenous Indian population in the U.S., but they tend to be the most patriotic. It's interesting, Carson did not elaborate on economic disparities, political strategy by the elite, pitting people against each other based on ethnicity, or the propaganda disseminated from networks like Fox. Now, the peculiarity of dog whistles among private organizations like Fox is one concern, but when dog whistles are normalized in the context of daily government policy, this has become extremely problematic. Recently, the Orange Minutes ordered the acting director of Office of Management and Budget, OMB, Russell Boyd, to eliminate all diversity training in the federal government. Trump defines such sessions as un-American. Un-American, of course, is one of those dog whistles that proclaims only one way to think. That is, thought must reflect class or racial biases. Any thought that seeks to enlighten threatens elite sensibilities and therefore must should be avoided. Why would additional information be perceived as problematic? This is particularly so given training sessions are conducted by professionally skilled presenters who focus is to enlighten, not to provoke. When Dr. Tamara Phillips-Jones, an epidemiologist and former head of the American Public Health Association, training session was canceled with the Center for Disease Control, suspicions abound the cancellation may have entailed discussions on economic disparities and its impact on COVID-19 infection rates on African and Latin people. This, of course, is speculation, but given her skill set, what she has to say should have been of value. Mr. Voigt did state Trump was adamant any discussion alluding to discussions of racism should be avoided. Implications of Trump directive suggest any problems in the U.S. has no bearing on the functioning of the system. Any problems that persist is a function of people who lack initiative and or drive. How many times have we heard that one? As a fascist politician, one could certainly understand Trump's unwillingness to confront objective truths. Had Dr. Jones been allowed to proceed with the training session, the true dimensions of COVID-19 may have been revealed. Perhaps the speculation of population decline in the U.S. from 327 million people to 100 million people by 2025 could have been revealed. Or perhaps the gross domestic product decline from $19 trillion currently to $2.4 trillion by 2025 possibly could have been revealed or providing clarity as to why the government's indifference to COVID-19 has been so apparent. Unfortunately, participants in the Center for Disease Control training sessions would never be privy to such discussions. Dog whistles emanating from the current White House are numerous. However, the most bizarre dog whistle came from Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services, Michael Caputo. Caputo, an employee of Health Health and Human Services, does not have a science or medical degree, was appointed by Trump to prevent objective COVID-19 information from reaching the media. Kabuto, doing his online account, advised his followers to secure ammunition for their guns. A rather bizarre dog whistle in that the intended message is obscured. Is he advocating to his followers war with the U.S. government or war with liberals? In one Facebook read, he postulated, deep state scientists wanted America sick. And this is a direct quote. Another read, he alleged left wing is preparing for a post-election armed revolt. With respect to the for, for the former, the D.C. has a long history of controlling U.S. policy, and on that point, I find plausible. However, when he alleges the left wing is interested in initiating armed revolt, that's totally fallacious. The reality is violence has always come from the right wing. Perhaps his dog whistle was intended to obscure that fact. Brother Africa, go ahead.
Yes, Brother Moses. The mic is yours. What's going on in your oh, world, okay. Brother Moses? Okay, then. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, um, well, we continue to Trump has continued to blast everything to ideologize three on the left. Uh, and from uh, Howard Zinn's book, uh, People's History of the United States, Zach Bass as a uh, left wing propaganda that and that he needs to keep his eyes on school. That's good, that's good. And I think, you know, so it's, it's been interesting. This week, um, um, Daniel Ellsberg testified in the, um, behalf of uh, Julian Assange. I think that was great. Um, Daniel Ellsberg certainly has a legacy that's of truth and justice. And we need that for Julian Assange. By the way, it's been an interesting week. I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Brother Moses. We have a caller who have weighed in. They want to discuss what's going on in our community. And let's bring this caller in right now. Call your last four numbers are 4039-4039. What's going on in your world in the community? Call 4039. Yes, hello. I'm calling from Mount Vernon, New York. I'm going to keep this very short and very sweet uh, because that's the topic. I think we uh, spend too much time talking about the problems and not actually taking action. I'm not, I'm not saying everybody, but uh, there are simple little things that people can do to help others. Um, there are a lot of people out there struggling, um, and there's some people out there who are doing better than others. And if we would just sometimes just lend a hand uh, to those who are uh, who are more needy than us. And Neely Fuller Jr., who was one of my mentors, says kind of the same thing. He says, uh, justice is helping people that need the most help. And that's all I have to say. Justice is helping people who need the most help? That's what you say, Carlo? Neely Fuller Jr., the, the mentor to Francis Crest Welsing, uh, mm-hmm. defines justice partly, partly defines justice as helping those who need the most help. And I would I would have to say that the people that need the most help right now are people who are uh, chemically. I, I use a kind of a uh, euphemism for uh, these medications that they give people. I mean, they're, they're really euthanizing them. But that's not a euphemism. That that's really what it is. They euthanize our uh, elderly with with medication and make it tons of money for the pharmaceutical industry. My mother is no longer with us and fell fell at the hands of that and um, uh, unfortunately couldn't even speak up for herself because the medication was making her mute. Um, so people might want to look into to think that the, the powers of, of these drugs to uh, to disable people. Okay, mm-hmm. thank you, Carla. You can stay on. We'd like to get your response and have a dialogue you and our panelists. Uh, panelists, analysts, you're here with this caller, Just David. He stated something very interesting in terms of this concept of justice, you know, um, use. He, he stated that when we look at justice from one perspective, we could look at it from a point of view of helping those who need the most help. And I heard him say something about we need to maybe be more or address issues where we can where we can spend more time helping people concretely. 
y'all respond to that 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 that, that outlook in terms of um, that you just heard, panelists. Y'all respond to that. I think there's a certain validity to uh, to the point that he raised, and also I think. Um, you know, I think he, I think it raises a couple issues. One in terms of helping those who need the most help, and um, and uh, let's see. And the thing about it, though, I think what he's raising is the fact that we need uh, to look at the most vulnerable in our communities, which are our very young and our elderly, because. Uh, let's see, uh, uh, the youth, our very young, our children, have not developed the ability to be able to articulate for themselves. And uh, the elderly, they lose that ability as they get older because of uh, declining health. And I think he makes a valid point of the impact that certain uh, pharmaceuticals have on uh, 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 on our elderly population, and um, you know I, I see a validity to that, but uh, you know, but I think it re, it drives home the point that we need to organize ourselves as a people in order to be able. Protect the most vulnerable of our communities uh, from uh, from the ravages of uh, capitalism, and uh, you know uh, pharmaceuticals definitely play uh, play a big part in that. You know, uh, but there are other factors that come into play as well. Yeah, well, you know, philosophically, that's that's fine, and you know, I can concur philosophically, but there are some pragmatic realities that we have to confront. We have to confront. One of the things when you talk about helping, one of the things you get to understand, there has to be a certain amount of understanding in terms of formatting help. See, help in itself, you know, doesn't mean anything. It's just a slogan. The reality is that there's a lot of issues pertain that that are that are detrimental to the African community. The question is, do we have an understanding in terms of the mechanics behind those problems? So if we can't clarify what the problem is, and it's very difficult in terms of devising the means in which to address those problems. So the brother talked about the fact that they're giving uh, all kinds of uh, uh, medications to people to undermine their health. But they've been doing that for the U.S. for a long period of time. But how many of my people are aware of that? And the question is, how do we engage people to want them to want to know about that? And secondly, how do we engage people to want them to actually take a stand? Because keep in mind, there's a price to be paid in terms of taking stand. See, helping people is good. But understanding that's a price to be paid, and so therefore everybody's not willing to pay that pay their price in terms of helping. So one of the things I always strongly advocate, one of the things we have to do, we have to first and foremost clarify exactly what the situation is in terms of what we're up against, and then we can really have discussion in terms of how we can move forward. But see, moving forward, it's impossible if people don't understand what the issues are, and this is the fundamental problem we have. It. So when someone says that, well, you're just you're just articulating, you know, but you're not doing anything concretely to address the problem. Well, the problem is that how are you going to address the problem if you don't? If, how, how is the problem going to be addressed if people don't know what the problem is? So this is the catch-22 we find ourselves confronted with. There are much work to be done, not just in terms of what happened in terms of the medical field. I mean, even when we talk about something like COVID-19 and the dis- disproportionate impact it's having on the African and, and African community, 
clearly, you know, and just trying to organize people around that very premise, that very idea in terms of address that issue is a very difficult thing because in address that issue, people do fundamentally understand that uh, they're going to they're going to ruffle some feathers, and the feathers that they ruffle are very powerful people who potentially could do undermine their careers and so forth and so on. So this so the question in terms of help sounds good, but the reality is in terms of getting to that point and actually trying to help is another thing. Secondly, you know, one of the things in terms of housing, you know, and, and I'm going to start asking in terms of, you know, but trying to get the, the most vulnerable with respect to housing is a very difficult thing because you got to understand they're most, they're, the most, they're most insecure because one of the things is that if the, 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 the landlord finds out or the agency that heads the, 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 the development finds out they're participating in any kind of movement, they can lose their housing. And so, of course, I'm not going to compel anybody in those circumstances to get involved in the movement given the, the core reality. If I can find people outside of those communities who are willing to come in and work with us in terms of addressing those issues will be idea. But the problem is that the people outside the community, number one, don't understand what the issues are as to as relate to, to the situation around home uh, um, housing, nor do, certainly nor do they even care about the issue because it doesn't pertain to them. So this issue of helping is fine in terms of you know, terms of in terms of rhetoric, but the reality is in terms of actually implementing that help is a different ballgame. So I agree with him on one level in terms of we need to do that, but more importantly, I mean, just as importantly, we have to begin to understand what it is we're helping, what, what we have to do in terms of bring about real help, and uh, in in in, the in such a way, you know, uh, to make sure that we're successful in terms of you know uh, um, um, implementing that strategy. So, uh, you know, so that's that's my view on that. I'm a call call four three nine. I'll let you respond back to what you've heard from. Political panelists, the analysts. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Okay. Uh, yes, I I agree with it. Uh, mo- pretty much uh, everything that you said because um, uh, you raised some counterpoints that that are very 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 under uh, recognized there uh, from my my in my end. Um. I guess what, maybe maybe I should clarify a little bit though. Uh, when I say helping others, I'm just saying, um, you know, little things, little things. Some sometimes we don't we don't recognize how, like just, I mean, like I remember when I was a student um, in college. I'll, this is a true story, a brief story. Um, I I had some change in my pocket. And there was a homeless person. Well, I don't know if he was homeless. I didn't assume he was homeless, but I I, I thought he might be. Um, and and I ended up not offering him the money that I thought about giving it to him, cause, giving to him because I thought he might be homeless, right? Um, and I ended up tipping my hat to him instead. And the guy looked me right in the eye and said, "Thank you." Um, so there's people out there. Just just some of them just. They may not be homeless. They may not need money, but they may just need somebody to talk to. And um, and I, I know when my mother was uh, very sick, you know, uh, I went through a very tough time. So I just that, that my point is that the little things, little things, the little things matter in life. Okay, and I know it sounds like trivial, but there are people out there that are very selfish. Okay, there really are. And um, I went through that too. I mean, I was I was went through a period where I was very hungry. I had I didn't have access to my funds, and um, and uh, it was very tough. So uh, you know, and there were there were people, there were certain individuals that helped me along the way, and now I'm finally over the hump and and starting to make my rise back to uh, to some self 
some uh, some normalcy, you know, because I, I know I don't no longer have parents and um, uh, not both both. But actually, my father he also took medication. So I, I really I don't really know where to go with this, but I do know that, that there's a lot of variables involved and. Um, and it says, well, Neely Fuller Jr., I'll bring him up again. He, he says, if you don't know white supremacy, what it is and how it works, everything else that you do understand will only confuse you. Um, and he insists that white supremacy and racism are the same thing and that we must defeat racism first. So I, I don't know if you guys have heard of his book. Uh, it's called The United Independent Compensatory Code System Concept, A Counter-Racist Code was written in 1957, the first edition. And I, I I have not read it myself, I'll admit, but I have collaborated with him and shared with him information. He has a website, producejustice.com, where you can get his book. It's also, I noticed, available in some libraries. Uh, but it's, uh, and I, 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 all I can say is that um, uh, it, uh, it, 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 it may hold the key. It may. I don't know. I can't, I can't speak for certain. Because I haven't read it myself, but I, I do. I have heard the man speak, and the man speaks very logically. Um, he has a YouTube channel. Uh, what is his YouTube channel? Um, Victor of RWS. Victor of RWS, and I, I'm a, I've been sharing some of his uh, some of his lectures over the years, um, and that's what I do. I, I do a lot of sharing of information. Um, on, on social media platforms um, on topics that I think people can benefit from. Uh, if we can get a bigger platform, perhaps the Internet may be the, 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 what saves us. Carla, I think your point is taken and recognized and it's a lot of truth, too. There are a lot of little things that we can do for people that may have an impact on individual lives, but at the same time, um, we, we do recognize that, I think as the panelists recognize that, when we look at the issues that are confronting our people, they are primary issues and they are secondary issues. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we need to look at is how do you approach, take a process that would eliminate and change these kind of issues that are affecting our people. So we've got to look at what is the primary contradiction issues that are affecting our people. Once you can do that, I think other things will fall in place. But your point is known as human being and very humanistic. You know, it's it always um, helpful when you can do any little thing that can help someone that will make their lives a lot more easier and better. So that point is well taken. What I would like to do that you raise with your interest point, I'd like to raise with my panelists to get that response to. You raise the issue of in order to get, get rid of uh, white supremacy, we need people raising the issue that we need to get rid of racism first. And I'd like to, my panelists to, to just speak to that issue. This question, in order to get rid of white supremacy, you need to get to get rid of racism. How do y'all see that particular approach, panelists? Um, I, I think we need to get to the root of the problem of racism, which is uh, capitalist exploitation. And uh, and uh, society and um, uh, racism exists because it has a material basis. 
people benefit uh, uh, materially from oppressing people of different races under capitalism. And uh, so, in order uh, in order to eliminate racism, you have to eliminate the uh, the material basis for it, which is capitalist exploitation. In other words, uh, there is a certain value in terms of exploiting people based on their ethnic differences. Once you eliminate the material and ideological basis for that, then you can eliminate racism. And uh, both have to, and both have to be done. It's not either or. And uh, that's a mistake, uh, you know, uh, some societies that have struggled uh, to build socialism have made. They've, they, they, uh, some societies that have struggled to build socialism eliminated the material basis for it, but did not eliminate the ideological roots of racism, which go back deep into history. And that's why, uh, you know, there uh, there are traces that of racism that that exist even in a society like Cuba, for example, to this day, because uh, Cuba was one of the last countries in the world to abolish chattel slavery, one of the last. Yeah. Well, you know. Yeah. Um. See. Racism is a, is a perception. Racism in and of itself has no power. So if you go to a person and say, listen, you know what, uh, or to a group, you say, listen, you need to stop being racist because it's not good for you. It's not good for the people that you practice racism against. It's not good for society. It's not good across the board. Well, you know what? Those words fall on deaf ears because it's simple. Which simple what you're, you're, you're appealing to a perception. And so, therefore, in, in their minds, you know, you can say whatever you want in terms of, you know, eliminating racism. But the bottom line is not going to go anywhere because, you know, because you, you really don't challenge the perception. See, the perception gets its theme, as Anthony alluded to, from the, the material reality of it all. See, capitalism is very, very profitable. And we have to understand that. The reason why they brought our ancestors over here was to, to maximize their profits, pure and simple. The reason why it currently exists now. It's purely profitable. This is why racism exists. So if you continue to, you know, to 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 to, to prop up racism and use it as a basis to keep salaries low, then that's precisely what they that's what capitalists do. And so therefore, this sort of material aspect in terms of in terms of racism can't be un, underscored enough. So we have to understand. So if we're serious about eliminating racism, then we must destroy capitalism. There's no in, no if and buts about it. So you can't tell me that you're serious about eliminating racism, but you tell me that you want capitalism to stay in place. Then, I'm, then in my mind, I'm looking at you like, you know what? You're full of crap. You don't, you don't seriously, you're not serious about what you're saying. You're just saying it because it sounds good. But the bottom line is if you're serious about eradicating racism, then you must destroy capitalism because it is, in fact, the fundamental material basis for racism. In fact, without that material basis, without rewarding people for that behavior, racism will cease to exist. And that is what the struggle is all about. Brother Mosey, any response from you? Yeah, I think that everybody's on point. I mean, I don't want to keep trying to reinvent the wheel and say things that have been already said, etc. But uh, um, certainly racism, Malcolm X said you couldn't have capitalism without racism. 
and uh, and uh, as far as the, the hole embedded in from the foundation of the, the hole, you know, uh, the the industrial complex they founded on racism and on the backs of, of black people and enslavement, and that's how it was able to develop and rapidly gain uh, dominance throughout the world. And uh, but the key to racism and to fighting racism is internationalism. Internationalism, and that's you know when we see the, the see ourselves and other people, other people in and uh, and just although they may have different skin color, maybe different religion, maybe whatever, but if we can, we have the compassion and the empathy to. Uh, to look beyond people's faults and see their needs, and uh, hopefully they will do the same for us. And uh, we need compassion, we need empathy, we need uh, even altruism. Uh, we need some selfless, selfless uh, acts of, of uh, justice and fair play. And uh, certainly, what the young man was saying about you know the need, trying to help the needy, and uh, you know I, I found. In my life, that you know, there is, you know, we try to serve the people. As Shakespeare Rivera said, a true revolutionary is guided by great feelings of love for the people, and that's real people. And stuff. So we try to serve the people, and we find that that, that if we support, so it's constantly speaking. So you have to be become aware of that situation. Uh, but generally speaking, people are good and gracious and. Uh, and love, love, freedom, and justice. Thank you. Okay, panelists, what I want to do, I think your name is dealing with looking at the world, and I would like to raise this particular issue with you, and I would like to get your take on looking at this world. Recently, uh, Donald Trump signed an executive order where he wanted to outlaw any kind of teaching, any kind of um, acknowledgement of institutionalized racism. He won't get no longer to be a discussion at the university and the school, etc. And if you do choose to do that at your institution, at your school, he would like to, he said he would like to take funds or draw funds from your institution. Now, looking at this world, if you take out any kind of discussion and try to non-avoid that institutional racism doesn't exist, what kind of impact would that have on the world in general and African people's struggle movement in particular? Panelists, y'all respond to that. Uh, I think it would. Uh, I think it would put. It, it would add to confusion and put blinders on people. I mean, not to even have the discussion of institutionalized racism, which is really the dominant form of racism inside the U.S. I mean, uh, uh, the Europeans dispense with the uh, colored only and whites only signs uh, decades ago. But the institutionalized racism uh, that uh that a lot that denies africans equal equal access uh to power and resources in this capitalist society 
that uh that that stays that has stayed intact and uh to acknowledge to a failure to acknowledge that would uh, you know lead to uh confusion and all kinds of dead ends and would uh, you know increase the suffering of Africans inside the US and those immigrants that come to the US for their education so I think it's uh, you know so I, th- I, 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 I think it's a very ominous sign, and I think it's something we have to fight against. Uh, let's see, because um, you know, uh, uh, you, uh, you know, in order to gain freedom, you have to be informed. I think that's critical. Yeah, okay. I, I, I think. Yeah, go ahead, yeah. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Uh, I, I'll, I'll be brief, but I think it's—I think its intent is to delegitimize any claims to racism, and de- delegitimizing claims to racism makes it easier. Makes, certainly makes the ruling class feel better about the racism. In fact, you can practice racism without actually having to be able to question in terms of racism. So I think that's his real motivation in terms of doing that. I think more importantly, I think what he wants to really say. I want. We want I think deep in the heart of heart, I think we want to what, what he really wants to say is that African people get what they get based upon their abilities. I think that's what he really wants to say. And so, therefore, what he's saying is that if we get rid of all curriculum espousing this question in terms of race, then we can see African people who they truly are, inferior beings. So I think that's his real motivation. And so we got to be very, very careful in terms of that because you've got a lot of people out here who, in fact, in the 21st century, who still have that mindset. In fact, his base primarily, you know, uh, these are individuals, you know, who are lacking in knowledge, who believes, in fact, that this whole notion in terms of inferiority is, is, in fact, a legitimate concern as related to the African community. So clearly, Trump, uh, modus operator, open, oh, excuse me, oh, it's, 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 it's clearly his intent is to is to is to promulgate this notion that, in fact, that the problem is, in fact, is an internal one. The problem resides in the minds of African people, and so therefore, any kind of discussion is simply misplaced because simply, you know, it doesn't address the inadequacy of the African community. And so, by not talking about the, the, about, about the problem of racism, then we can sort of legitimize that notion that, in fact, the problem is one of African inferiority. So clearly, I think that's what his real motivation is all about. Okay, to our listening audience, you listen to Africa on the Move. We'll like to let you know very shortly. We're going to a station break, and when we come back, what we want to do, we have invited a guest, Brother Omari Musso. He's, he's running for the D.C. delegates to U.S. House of Representatives. We're going to have them to come forward after their station break, our revolutionary culture break, and we're going to talk to him as a candidate. What is that that he's going to bring to the table, why he's running, and how would that benefit our community? This is what we're going to do after our revolutionary culture break. We'll be back with our brother Omari. You'll listen to Africa on the Moon. Living in pain, today is the same, and nothing ever changes. Hung by the news, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? 
you know, Brother Omari, historically people were asked the question that can you truly bring change from the inside of a system? If you acquire the seat, you recognize you'll be still functioning under a capitalist structure. You will be dealing with capitalist institutions. And the whole question when you talk about power, when you talk about money, how effective can you truly think you can be by functioning and operating in institutions that have historically and originally been created to continue to exploit working class people? All people, in essence, who are not part of the capitalist ruling class. So, what are you going to bring different? What you have seen the other people came before you who wanted to occupy these seats to lead you to think that you can bring about some kind of change or influence? Lee, brother, uh, the question is not what Omari can do. Um, we don't say vote for me and I'll solve all the problems. What we call for is building a mass movement of working people to fight for the things that I just enumerated. That is to fight for conditions on the job, to fight for jobs for everybody uh, who needs them, uh, to stop police brutality, to build a party of working people. I'm not going to do that. I'll be a part of that fight. Uh, but it'll take the millions of working people organized to actually achieve those goals, and that's what we're looking for. Capitalism, in my, in our opinion, cannot be reformed. Uh, it has to be replaced by a system based on the needs of working people. So we call for a government of workers and farmers to replace this capitalist government and their politicians. So, Brother Mari, I assume fundamentally you are arguing your party working Social work party declares that the primary contradictions in America, so therefore Africans need to be a party so strictly upon the issue of primary class. Now, how does race play into an aspect when African people view that history and that struggle well, in the context of how SWTs view this particular issue of um, the oppression of African people and other minorities within this compound? Racial discrimination is an integral part of the capitalist system. Uh, you can't have one without the other. That's why we have to organize ourselves to fight against the capitalist system. Every aspect of discrimination, whether it be against African Americans, Native people, uh, immigrants, women, has to be fought by a mass movement of working people. That's what we're about. Uh, we don't see racial oppression and exploitation as separate from the capitalist system. You can't have one without the other. We've, we've, we're for getting rid of the capitalist system, which opens the door to finally eliminate uh, the vestiges uh, that slavery had in the United States and begin to advance humankind on a road of solidarity. That's what we call for. Let me give you an example. All through in the spring uh, and early summer, millions of people turned out to protest police brutality in the United States and around the world. In fact, they were of all colors and nationalities in the United States. Nobody called upon them based on their color of their skin. They saw an injustice being done and they came out. That younger generation, by and large, are the ones who are going to spearhead the fight against racial discrimination, sexual discrimination, 
and the oppression of capitalist society. And they didn't have to be told that the hardest blows fall, fall against African Americans, but the blows fall against all working class people, and we have to get rid of the system that organizes and carry out those blows against us all. So we see it as an integral thing. We can't separate racial oppression from the capitalist oppression. Capitalism came on the scenes in the United States hooked in with oppression of Africans and African-Americans. We won't be able to free ourselves until we get rid of capitalism itself. And my last question right now, Brother Marty, Marty, and I'll turn you over to our panelists. You know this show is a international pan-African platform, and we always like to look at issues that are impacting African people from a global perspective inside America and throughout the world. And given that it's our primary audience, where we do recognize the oppression of other um, oppressed people, we also know that there is a relationship globally. All people who are oppressed have a common enemy, as you may have stated, through capitalism, imperialism, etc. Well, I'd like to get your position as a as a candidate. African people, if African people ask the question that we have looked at the history of the United States, we have looked at the history of labor movements as relates to the interests of African people. We have looked at the issue of multiracial organizations and political parties in this country. We are looking at all these different forms of political party, and they have not addressed the needs and the interests of African people. They were asked the question that what we need today is an independent Pan-African political party that would address the interests of Africans first and primary. What would be your analysis in terms of the incorrectness of that position? dealing with African people inside and outside of you, inside the U.S., from your perspective? Well, let me give you another concrete example. When the uh, National Black Independent Party political party was formed here in the United States in 1980, I was a member of that. I I became a member of that organization and was one of the co-chairs in the city that I lived in of the National Black Independent Political Party. We saw that as an advance toward working people, in this case African-Americans, beginning to take the independent road and to begin to explain in the African-American community and whoever listens that we needed our own political organization to fight for our rights. So that's that's from my own experience. If such a party was formed today, I would be a part of such a party and advocate that we we fight for jobs for everybody, that we fight for a union in every workplace, that we fight against discrimination against everybody, no matter what sex they are, no matter what skin they, skin color they are, and we fight for something else that's very important. That is, workers should be able to control production on the job. I mean, the bosses speed up the line, and we have to cater to it. But if we should decide because we are the ones who are working the line and know what the safety conditions should be. So that's one of the things that an independent political party that was started by African-Americans would do. Actually, in fact, that was some of the issues that we raised in the National Black Independent Political Party at the time. We didn't have any hostility to anybody who was Caucasian or any other nationality, but our direction was how do we fight the advance, the interest 
of African Americans in the United States, and as a part of that, in our opinion, in the Socialist Workers Party, any advance on that level, it is advanced for all working people. So in the absence of such a party, I could say what I would do if I, if there was one, but our major campaign is around this question of having a party that's inclusive, that includes a fighting labor movement, uh, a labor party. That's what we advocate right now. Okay, Brother Omari, we are interviewing Brother Omari. Musa, who is running for the D.C. delegate, the U.S. House of Representatives for D.C. Right now, we're going to turn the mic on to our political plan analyst. And you, the listening audience, if you have any views or any comments you'd like to make or ask our brother, please call in 323-679-0841. Hit 1, and we will acknowledge you. Right now, we're bringing our brother after. The mic is yours. Oh, revolutionary greetings, uh, Brother Amari. How are you? I'm fine, Brother Anthony. How are you doing? Doing okay. I have a question for you. How? Uh, what is your uh, your uh, your party's position on uh, uh, def- uh, defunding uh, the police? Um, uh, let's see. Uh, from re- uh, you know, news sources indicate that the U.S. government spends uh, a lot of resources on its military and police, and on uh, mass incarceration. And uh, do you feel those resources could be better channeled uh, to things like education, health care, full employment? That would minimize the need for uh, uh, for heavy policing and mass incarceration. Well, we figure that the police are the first line of defense of the capitalist system. Their responsibility and job is whether the chief of police is black, Latino, white, doesn't matter, is to keep working people down and to victimize as much as possible what they call minorities, African-Americans, Chicanos, etc. That's their job. You cannot defund the police. Um, they may shift money around, the local governments and the state and city and national government, but there will be police who will use weapons of terror and murder to victimize African-Americans and others. That's why we say that you can't really get deal with the police until the system that the police defend is gotten rid of. Now, here's the other part. We call for the prosecution of every cop, every single one of them, when they brutalize and murder working people, whether it's Breonna Taylor, whether it's Dion Kay here in D.C., or anywhere else. And we are for a mass discipline movement of working people to demand that these cops be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. But we don't think the capitalist system is going to let the cops go. Uh, They may use that, for example. I'll give you an example. Here in Washington, D.C., and other major cities in the United States, probably including Richmond, I don't know the stats, 
there's an increase in homicides and police shootings in the black community in particular. The police have pulled back and allowed us to be a, attack ourselves. But that is, in fact, is one of the things that Malcolm X pointed out, is a function of us not having expertise in our own work. And that's what we propose. You don't have to go out and get a gun and shoot somebody. That's a decision. But we say that's in the interest of the rulers, to have us fighting and murder, murdering each other. When there's a mass movement of working people, black as well as others, the, the incident of homicides and brutality in the black community by other African Americans goes down drastically. That's what we're looking forward to, not to the police. If, you are, if your brother or sister is having a, an attack, a medical attack, and you call the police, they're liable to be shot, or you are, by the police. That's not a solution to our problem. So we call for the need for us to organize our own defense uh, as working people through our mass organizations in the community. That's what we call for. We don't think this, uh, defunding the police it's a utopian kind of perspective. It's not going to happen. Thanks. Brother, Brother Hackey, questions? Yeah. Let me, let me ask the brother this. Now, in terms of when we talk about the, the capitalist class, clearly they employ strategy in terms of maintaining the oppression. Now, among those strategies is a specific strategy geared toward the um, – uh, the the uh, marginalization of African people. So my question to you is very very simple. If in fact that is that is reality in terms of in terms of politics, uh, the question is, given that specific focus in terms of maintaining the pressure of African people, what strategy do you have in terms of combating that? Well, brother Kim, here's the uh, problem I think uh, that we're all grappling with. It's not just the problem of uh, the socialist workers' fight. How do we advance the interests of the African community uh, in the context of the class struggle in the United States? The rulers have many devices at their disposal. The media, churches, you name it, they own it, and they use it to keep us, as Malcolm would say, deep, dumb, and blind. That's part of our problem. The other problem is they have, on the political level, they have two political parties, one called the Democrats and one called the Republicans who switch off every two or four years to say that the other one is really the problem. Now, for example, all of a sudden, the current president, Trump, who's a Republican, seems to be the cause of all of the problems. That's all of the media says. And this other fellow, Joseph Biden, is the solution. That's not true. It can't be true. They rule jointly. And whatever little differences they have, they work them out. But they're working out their differences has nothing to do with giving us, working people, any modicum of freedom and liberation. So they use every instrument, including their instrument of police power. I don't mean the local police, just, but I mean everything from the army on down to keep working people down and divided. That's their major thing. Our biggest division is being divided between those who work those who don't have a job, you throw in a racial oppression on top of that. Those are the divisions. But they use the Democratic and Republican Party and the illusions that we have in them to foster the interests of the ruling rich. 
And we had a president who was a Democrat, who was African-American, and nothing changed for the African-American community. Nothing changed for the working class and more attacks. The same thing will happen no matter who's who's elected in the elections in 2020. That's our opinion. And I think history bears us out and that perspective out as being the truthful one. All right, second question for you, brother. Uh, now, in terms of defunding police, uh, clearly uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a strategy. They understand that the capitalists are not going to defund the police. They're the first line of defense for the capitalists. They're not going to defund the police. And I think the people who, 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 who innovated this term understand that. But I think they did it for, for a strategic reason. If, in fact, if you talk about defunding the police, then it gives impetus to this notion that there's something fundamentally wrong in terms of how the police operate. They have access to millions and millions of dollars, but yet they can systematically kill their people. So I think it sort of brings tension to this whole question around police brutality. So it's really a strategy. So what is your response to, to, that, to that? Well, I think the uh, idea of defunding the police is a diversion uh, from the real issue. The real issue is police brutality. The real issue is prosecuting the police who create these crimes against working people to the full extent of the law. They don't get convicted often, but they, even though they committed all of these crimes. The question of defunding the police, I think, is a, one of the questions that goes to the root of what the capitalist system is all about. The capitalists need police to keep us down. That doesn't change. And I think the idea of defunding the police Getting rid of this chief of police or that chief of police is a diversion from the fact that we had a mass movement that was going on that was provoked by the killing of George Floyd, the last killing that happened then. And millions of people went into the street and put heat on the government of the United States. And that movement was international. And that's what the uh, rulers of the United States don't want. And I think it's a misunderstanding and a diversion by those who think that the police can be defunded and that's in the interest of working people. That's simply utopian and not going to happen. And it's a diversion from the real fight to prosecute the police who commit these crimes against working people and put them behind bars where they belong. So do you think anything that heightens the awareness in terms of police brutality is a good thing? Well, I think we saw what happened. The police will continue to kill, maim, uh, working people of all nationalities, not just African-Americans. That's their job. That's their job. That's one of the things that we have to get in our heads. It's not a question of bad apples in the bucket. All of the apples are bad. The whole bucket is bad. We've got to get rid of the whole bucket. But in the process of doing that, we can build a movement that demands that the police be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. Now, part of the problem is the diversions that go on uh, to get us away from that perspective of building a movement to fight for our rights and for the prosecution of the police. That's what I think the defunding question is. That's also a part of the problem that we have with people who are breaking windows and looting and so on and so forth. That's not on the road to building a mass movement. Most working people take a step back when they see that's happening. And what we need is something to the contrary, a movement that demands that the cops who commit these crimes against us be prosecuted to the full extent of the law and keep the pressure on, whether it's the president of the United States 
or whether it's local officials. And then the final analysis, the only way to get rid of police brutality is actually get rid of the system that spawns them, and that is the capitalist system. As I said earlier, they are integrated. They are integrated. They cannot be separated. The capitalist system and its apparatus of repression. One final question, and I'll conclude with this final question. Uh, you talked about earlier that the ruling class has access to many strategies in terms of maintaining their oppression. So it seems to me, um, you know, um, one of the things in terms of, you know, when you when you talk about in terms of defunding the police, it's, it's, it seems to me that if that goes toward um, sort of enlightening people as to the real problems pertaining to police brutality, it's not necessarily a bad thing on a strategic level, it seems to me. So I understand I understand clearly what you're saying in terms of the the, the, the uh, if, if if you if you view it you know um, and, and, and you know literally then I understand what you're saying but I think if you view it in the context of strategy and tactics then you understand that defunding the police is brilliant because it does heighten the awareness in terms of police brutality which is a good thing in my estimation but you know my you know but let me let me ask you, let me just switch switch focus and ask you this um, damn. Now, what is the okay? What is what is what is your view in terms of you know as you talk about uh, the, uh, the 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 ruling class uh, access to all kinds of strategies? What is your view in terms of you know um, government agencies actually infiltrating these movements and facilitating all kinds of uh, uh, ridiculous kinds of things like breaking windows, attacking people, and all that kind of thing, uh, so as to turn people off in terms of that movement? So what do you think about that in terms of as a strategy by the ruling class in terms of infiltrating these movements and actually facilitating all these things that you talk about? Yeah, they will do that, and they have done that, and they will continue to do that. They will try to derail uh, the movement of working people when we fight for our rights. Um, The question of um, agent provocateurs and others like that can only be exposed when we build a disciplined movement. And that is where we are today. Let me give you an example. You, for example, hang on to the idea that defunding the police, that idea, that diversion uh, is progressive. My position is is that that's a diversion from the real issue of uh, explaining the role of the police in capitalist society and building a movement of working people to oppose what the police do and the capitalist system. So here's what we have to do. Our campaign is built around explaining the truth from the point of view of working people. Let me give you another example. When we go to work, I work uh, most of the time. I do part-time work. I work at Walmart, like like over a million other people in the United States. And one of the things that we say is that working people should have control over the conditions of work and wages. That doesn't seem complicated, and we have to organize and fight for that. And through that, we will build a union in every workplace and a labor party. That's the real question that we have to address that will have a program to fight against the capitalist system. That's what we're confronting, and police brutality. The example is, where are the unions who fight against police brutality? If the workers who are attacked and killed by police are members, in many cases, of unions and so forth. But the unions have not stepped forward, the leadership, to organize the fight against that. 
working people have participated in demonstrations, of course, uh, against police brutality. But we need these institutions that we're a part of, the unions and so forth, the churches, to fight against police brutality. That's one of the things that we raised in our campaign. For jobs, they're not saying anything. We need to have a mass public works program financed by the government to provide jobs for everybody. They whine and groan about all the people that are out of work, but we need to organize ourselves to actually fight for a government-funded program to put the millions of people who are unemployed to work at union-scale wages where they can live on them. That's what we need to fight around, and that begins to eliminate one of the major divisions amongst working people, that is, those who got a job and those who don't have a job. That's what we're after, the unification of working people and the fight against the common enemy. And clarity of politics is very important. Otherwise, we will be diverted from what we need to do. And that's what the rulers try to do every step of the way. Brother Moses, the mic is yours. Yeah, um, obviously the brother is well versed on the state and revolution by V.I. Lennon. Uh, thank goodness for that. Um, 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 I think, you know, at this point in the history, though, what we need is V.I. Lennon on left-wing communism and infantile disorder. And uh, the concrete analysis of concrete conditions of the life and soul of Marxism, and we're faced with fascism here in the U.S. of A. Donald Trump wants to be a dictator like Bolsonaro, and he wants to be, he wants to be like, uh, he just wants to have unlimited rule, basically. That's his, that's his real uh, motive. And uh, we have to counter that. We can't have a process of appeasement for fascism. We that the historical uh, lessons of the anti-communist, anti-fascist movement point out that a, a process of appeasement is the wrong path to take. And so we've got to stop Trump while we can because he is he is um, out of control. And, uh, and, and if he's allowed to continue to, to deepen his, his control of the state, and use the state in his interest, you know, we're going to be uh, in a in a in a dire street. And I think, you know, that's that's my problem with uh, the situation as I see it. Um, we need to point out that, that this fascism is not an ordinary uh, mode of capitalist uh, operation, and we need to point to to this situation and tell it what it is. Um, I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Well, can I, I think the um, brother actually winds up saying is that we have to defeat Trump at all costs. And that means, in fact, supporting Biden. And that is part of our problem. I tried to uh, raise that before, that they have us running between the wolf and the fox, uh, between the Democrats and Republicans. And one is always better. I'm old enough to remember that in the election in 1964, the presidential candidate of the Republican was a guy, a senator named Barry Goldwater, and the guy who was running for the Democrat was Lyndon Johnson. And everybody said, we got to defeat Goldwater at all costs because he's a fascist. And what happened, in fact, was is that Johnson got elected 
It's vowed to destroy Vietnam. That's what we got from the so-called peace candidates. All of the rulers, the politicians, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, adhere to the same politics of defending the interests of the rich. They may have their little disagreements, but it has nothing to do with us. The real question is of building a working-class movement that can put to an end the capitalist system of oppression and exploitation. We're at the very beginning stages of that, but working people are beginning to wake up a little bit. Yeah. They're beginning to see that the Democrats and Republicans are two sides of the same coin, that neither one of them are in the interests of regular working people, no matter what skin color we happen to be or our heritage background. And what we have to do is take advantage of that, not falling to the trap of supporting one of the bourgeois candidates as opposed to another. We'll get the same treatment uh, from one as the other. And that's what defeating Trump at all costs means. We're not living under fascism today. That doesn't mean that sometime in the future some politician won't promise that. But we have the opportunity now and the time now to organize a mass working class movement of all nationalities that can advance our interest in the final analysis deal with the question of capitalist rule. That's what we have have to keep our eye on. During the civil rights movement, one of the things that people said was keep your eyes on the prize. And the prize is not supporting the Democrats as opposed to the Republicans. The prize is to fight to get both of them off of our backs. That's what the Socialist Workers Campaign is about. Now, if you want to vote, vote for what you want and what you're for and not what you're scared of. Vote for the Socialist Workers Party. That's what I, endure, I encourage you to do. We won't solve the problem. All of us together in our tens of millions will. But if you want to vote, that's the way you should vote. Not for the lesser of two evil, but for what you're for and those that represent the interests of the oppressed and exploited. That's what we have to do. That's why I'm running. All right. Do you think that Donald Trump... And Hitler uh, have any similarities? Do I say I didn't? Yeah, I heard. Do you think Donald Trump? That's all I heard. Brother Moses, repeat your question. Do you think that Donald Trump, Adolf Hitler, had any similarities? <laughs> I don't think uh, we uh, uh, that Donald Trump is a fascist. I think he was a right-wing Republican. Um, Right-wing Republicans run for president all the time. Right-wing Democrats run for president all the time. We have to look at what they do, not what people say they say. I mean, if you look at, for example, uh, the Clinton administration, a Democrat, right, he put imposed more restrictions on immigrant workers and on Cuba than the previous Republican candidate. Well... And Obama was the deportation king of immigrants who come to the United States without so-called papers. He was a Democrat. So the question is, are you still going to choose between the lesser of two evils, so-called, or are you going to choose for something that you want? We, for example, are for amnesty for all people who live in the United States who come from other countries so that we can unite the working class. We can unite the working class and get rid of the divisions that exist between us. 
solidifies with all the struggles that people wage, whether they have papers or not. Get the police agencies like La Migra off their backs and mobilize people against that. That's what we're for. I don't think it'll matter whether Biden is elected or Trump is elected. That's the real key. It won't matter to working people. They will both attack our rights, our democratic rights, and our living conditions because they both serve the ruling class. Okay, Brother Marvin, what we're going to do right now, we're going to pause for a rubber culture break, and when we come back, we're going to have, ask you some questions as relates to the platform or the SWP as it relates to the Palestinian question, as it relates to what's going on in Venezuela, and you just touch a little bit about Cuba. We'd like to hear y'all, your international perspectives on these issues and others. We'll be right back. This is Africa on the Moon. If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine Palestine. needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth, take a stand for justice. That's what we've got to do, because Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. People of all countries, of every race, and creed. We need a new beginning. Let us plant the seed. Plant the seed of love and let that love seed grow. Plant the seed for everyone so all the world will know that Palestine Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Me en la cabeza, en intelecto y actitud, estamos sobrados, somos ricos, y sigo respetando al rato de Puerto Rico, al cubano, al colombiano, mexicano. 
mexicano y español, pero lo de nosotros sale del corazón, con sentimiento, con talento, violento, ojo, no con armas, sino con conocimiento, el intelecto emana de los foros, te metes en internet y lo ves en los foros, es sabiduría, aunque muchos locos piensen que son habladurías, conozco primero a fondo la ciencia mía, para que después hablen como comadre, chismosa, yo te escribo en verso y en prosa, no soy Alice en el país de las maravillas, estamos claros, te portas mal, te acribillas, Papilla, es que eso es obvio. O eres ángel o eres demonio, ni nino. O eres ángel o eres demonio. Quiero ver a toda la gente con las manos arriba. ¿Dónde están los latinos con las manos arriba? Que vive el hip hop con las manos arriba. ¿Qué? Con las manos arriba. Que viva la cultura con las manos arriba. El deporte con las manos arriba. Venezuela con las manos arriba. ¿Qué? ¿Qué? Sentimiento, sabor, rumba, corazón. La salsa retumba, retumba el tambor. Recuerda el folclore, te lo digo el rap, crece la tensión, ritmo caribeño, se siente el calor, esta es música de calle, al que no le guste que vaya a llorar para el valle, es música con estilo, tú estás claro así que solo dilo, para que lo sepa, suena tan criolla como comerse una arepa, volar papagayo, llámalo, cometa, tropo perinola, que te ruchen las metras, música venezolana y todo lo que se haga en Venezuela, no solo es un ritmo, escucha las letras, tan criollo como que te vean y te digan, Hablamos y lo que más me alegra, la gente latina siempre será gente negra. Contiguous 
Palestinian state and recognize the state of Israel. That's the, our position, and that's what we fight for. Um, we think that'll pull together and make the orga- begin to organize the basis for unity between the people who live in the state of Israel, some of whom are 20% more are Palestinian, and the Palestinians who live in Gaza and the West Bank, to come up with a program to, to defend themselves against the capitalist rulers of both areas, Hamas in the Gaza, uh, the PLO in the West Bank, have be, not been supporters of the Palestinian cause in reality with the idea that you have to reject the fact that Israel exists. That's not going to work. They have to figure out something else. They, may, they have been selling out the Palestinians, in our opinion, the leaders of the PLO, Hamas, on and on and on, as well as the bourgeois, clerical, Arab regimes that use the Palestinian fight to enhance their prestige in the world when they've done nothing to do to solve the Palestinian question. That's our position. Okay. And we think that's a, that's a fighting question that it will fight. The, the people in uh, the area will fight to bring this to pass. That's what we're convinced of. Uh, the other thing is on Cuba. The United States has been hostile to the Cuban Revolution since 1959. And has imposed all manner of uh, embargo against trade with Cuba, international trade with Cuba, by any country in the world to overthrow the Cuban Revolution. Uh, as they said at the beginning in 1960, the purpose of the embargo was to bring suffering to the people of Cuba so that they would overthrow the government. The Cuban people and their leadership has presumed, have proven stronger than what the United States government, Democrats, Republicans, in Congress and out of Congress, have tried to do, including invasions, including shooting down ter- financing terrorists, Etc. Etc. So we call for a complete end to the economic, social blockade against Cuba that the United States government imposes on the people of Cuba. That's, in a nutshell, our position. We're supporters of the Cuban Revolution and fight shoulder to shoulder with the masses of Cuba against the embargo imposed by the United States, and in a manner of advancing, which Cuba does the interests of working people on a world scale. That's what we're for. And uh, any position on your sanctions against Venezuela? Well, we're against any sanctions on Venezuela at all, any. Uh, We call for the abolition of all of these sanctions that the United States imposes on countries around the world. We we think that the uh, tax on Venezuela is typical of what the United States does, its government, and it's also a double whammy to get at the Cuban Revolution as well, because Cuba and uh, Venezuela are allies. So we call for the abolition of all of those sanctions against Venezuela and let the people of Venezuela decide the politics of what happens in Venezuela. I've been to Venezuela twice, so you can see it there. And last question is many people may see their vote as not being a significant vote. If they vote for you because you run on the SWP ticket, 
and many people may say that's a way, you know, that vote would be a waste of vote. What would you say to those people? Hey, mommy, I want to give you three, four minutes to talk to our listening audience. Why they okay. should vote for you, and how can they support your campaign? Here's how uh, people can support the campaign. Uh, hopefully, everybody has a pencil and paper handy. They can write down how to contact us. And I urge all of them, no matter where they live, uh, in your listening area, to support the campaign uh, by uh, addressing the campaign and saying that you are an endorser of the Socialist Workers' presidential slate, which includes myself. Now, our contact information is in Washington, D.C., where we have our office. Uh, it's uh, the D.C. Socialist Workers' Campaign at 7603 Georgia Avenue Northwest, Suite 300. That's our address, D.C., 20012. And our phone number is 202-536-5080. And if you wanted to send us a little email note asking to have us come down and speak with you and your group, you can email us at swp.washingtondc at verizon.net. Uh, and I'm sure Lee will be able to get you the information if you didn't have a chance to write it down. But our phone number is 202-536-5080, and our address is 7603 Georgia Avenue Northwest, Suite 300, Washington, D.C., 20012, D.C. Socialist Workers Campaign. Just a little note, I think that people who vote for the Socialist Workers candidates are voting for what we see coming down in the attacks against working people to organize a movement against the capitalist system of oppression and exploitation. A vote for Democrats and Republicans is indeed, in our opinion, wasting your vote by voting for the candidates of the oppressor. So I urge everyone out there to vote the Socialist Workers Party in the elections coming up. And Brother Omar, we'd like to thank you for coming forward and sharing your platform and your perspective. And along now, listen to all these know that you will be a candidate running for the D.C. delegate to the U.S. House of Representatives. We thank you for your contribution to today's program, and we wish the best to you. We thank you. I, uh, thank you very much, Lee, and uh, I thank the, uh, your listening audience. I hope people wrote down our number uh, and get in contact with us. Uh, on October 2nd, we'll have our vice presidential candidate, Malcolm Jarrett, speak at a uh, campaign event here in Washington, D.C., at our, at our campaign office. I urge all of you who are listening to want to find out more about our campaign to come to that event. It's at 7 p.m. on October 2nd. Thanks very much, Lee. I appreciate it, as well as the panelists and your audience. Thank you for your contribution to today's, to today's program. To our listening audience, you listen to Africa on the Moon. Our theme tonight is looking at the world. This is going to be part one. We have what we're going to do right now. We're going to take a quick revolutionary culture break, and when we come back, we're going to get our final thoughts for our panelists and analysts for tonight's program. You listen to Africa on the Moon. Thank you. 
ago. We now going to make our closing remarks from our political panelist analyst for today's program, which the theme was looking at the world. This is part one. There will be a two-part series, which will be next Sunday. And we'd like to thank everyone who was a part of this program. I always like to thank you for allowing us this opportunity to come to your homes where we can share information with you so we hope to inspire you to work more and do more and make this a better world for all mankind. So right now we're going to close out for today by asking our political panel analysts for their final thoughts for today. And we'll start with Brother Moses. Your final thoughts and comments for tonight, Brother Moses. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I just want to emphasize that, you know, Donald Trump is trying to institute his dictatorship over the country, and he, that's what everybody reports to him. He's streamlined his government. He's he's knocked off anybody who has disloyal, and he's moving in. He's already talking about the elections. You know, he's going to win no matter what, more or less, and uh and you know we have to believe him when he when he tells us he's against progressives and Democrats and, and socialists and communists. You know, and he's against anybody who who believes in Howard Zinn's book, etc. I mean, these are ABCs of of uh, of, of uh, consciousness, and so he's against any kind of light enlightenment whatsoever. And and this is not your run of the mill situation. Um, I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Next, we'll go to Brother Hackey. Brother, your final thoughts for the night, Brother Hackey. Yeah, you know, recently in uh, Colorado, Colorado Springs, a uh, young trivial African uh, male was in, 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 uh, involved in virtual education, right? So he was getting instructed via computer. So what happened was he was playing with a, a Nerf uh, rifle, a little toy gun called Nerf. Shoot those little soft uh, pellets. Well, not actually pellets. They like to like cotton balls. But anyway, the the art instructor on the other end of the uh, of the of the feed saw that, and she reported it to the assistant principal, who in turn called the police. The police showed up at the twelve-year-old boy's house to confront his parents about him playing with a Nerf Nerf gun doing instructions. And, of course, the implication being that, you know, that uh, they thought it was a real weapon. I got to ask you, you know, the reality is that, you know, if you see someone playing with someone clearly as a toy and he's at home, why didn't the, the school officials call the parents and say, listen, we got some concerns, you know, about, about this, 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 this toy that your kid has in his possession, you know, during, during times of instruction? They didn't do that. They immediately alerted the police. Now the young the young brother has a record, uh, you know, and which, which states that will probably state you know, that uh, he was uh, in fact uh, 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 guilty of being possession of some kind of weapon. And of course, we understand in terms of racism in society how that uh, adversely impact on the lives of African people, particularly when you when you go seeking employment and the, the employee pulls it up and see that, you know, even though he's a he's a youth. It should be uh, it should it should be sealed, but the reality is that given the technology today, none of it's really sealed. So they really don't have access to everything about you. They simply can. So clearly, it's problematic in terms of the perception of African people. So I think one of the things that when we when we think about the perception that that some of these races have of African people, we can't do much in terms of uh, terms of uh, eradicating that mindset. The most we can do as a people is get our act together and do what we got to do for us. That's that is the bottom line. And so as such, we have to have those institutions in terms of, A, 
protecting our, our, our children, B, protecting our communities, and C, uh, something that entails a long-term plan in terms of survival in the society. Those things we must have, but we cannot have those things without, without institutions and without organizations. So in closing, Brother Africa, you know, I would encourage people, you know, to please, by all means, you know, build those organizations, build those institutions. They're so critical. Even if you think that this is all hyperbole, I want you to think seriously about in terms of the decline of the economy and what that really means. And, you know, as always, I say, Brother Africa, you know, we, you know, we have to unravel the matrix. You know, if we don't unravel the matrix, it just becomes that much more problematic. And saying that, Brother Africa, you have a good night. Thank you, Brother Hackey, for your contribution to today's program. And we'll close out with Brother Anthony. Your final thoughts for tonight, Brother Anthony. Yes. Uh, let's see. In light of the problems we're facing today, it is more critical than, uh, than uh, critical than ever that all Africans who who who, who love our people and who care about our future join a political organization that is working for our people's liberation. One such organization is the All African People's Revolutionary Party GC. Please visit our website www dot a dash a p r p dash g c dot org for more information about the history of pan Africanism and uh, and more information about the All African People's Revolutionary Party G C. Please join us in uh, our fight for our freedom. Thanks. And on that note, we would like to remind you that you can listen to Africa on Move every Sunday evening from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, U.S. And if you have any comments or questions, feel free to email us at move 2 at gmail.com. Remember, this is a weekly program. This program is here for you. We want to give you information so that you can use it as a tool for liberation. And we want to expose you to various organizations and movements. So you can join these organizations and movements because remember, the greatest weapon of the press is organizations. So please, we encourage you, join the organization that is working toward the liberation of your people and a better humanity. So we hope to see you next week, same time, same place. And please share the word that Africa is on the move and Athena Unite is looking at the world. And Marvin Gaye will live in day. He will ask the question, what's going on? Release your there's far too many of you dying You know we've got to find a way To bring some love here today Father, Father We don't need to escalate You see, war is not the answer For only love We've got to find a way To bring some
Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Capitalism is a backward and stupid system. Capitalism is a contemptuous system. Capitalism is a system made on profit. It will make a commodity out of everything. It will take my mother and sell her on a slave block. It will make students acquire knowledge and make them sell their knowledge on the slave block to advance themselves rather than serving humanity. The struggle becomes especially crucial for African students. We say no individual African in this country makes any advance unless it is a result as mass struggle. Any student sitting in any seat in any college in America know that they didn't gain that seat through their own individual talents, but only through the struggles of the masters of their people. Thus, that seat belongs to the people. The knowledge they acquire there must be used for the people, otherwise they have already betrayed the people and have repeated errors. And Africanism must come from the bottom up, from the mass of the people up. It is here then that we've come to see the real aspect of Pan-Africanism. We said that in the Fifth Pan-African Congress they called for mass organizations, and immediately mass organizations sprang up throughout the length and breadth of the African world. The Conventional People's Party, a mass party, sprang up in Ghana. The Democratic Party of Guinea, a mass party, sprang up in Guinea. Throughout the length and breadth of Africa you had the TANU, the Tanzanian African National Union, which is now the CCM. My Swahili is uh, not as good as yours. It's Chimpa, Chimpuraza, Mazuri. That's very good. Oh, <laughs> my, my Swahili is bad. <laughs> Thank you. Exactly, exactly. And uh, that's their new party. But all over Africa, mass parties sprung up. If you look at the Caribbean, mass parties sprung up. And if you look at the United States, mass movements sprang up. So the call was heeded for mass confrontation. Of course, the Fifth Pan-African Congress made two definite and precise resolutions which I want to uh, highlight. Of course, Pan-Africanism from the very beginning was anti-colonial. From the very beginning it was anti-colonial. It was weak. So when they came, they didn't say to the Queen, we're going to put you out of the country. They said, you must treat the natives right. You must educate them. You must prepare them for self-government. These are things that are weak, but they were anti-colonial in essence. We must not look at the form. And we got stronger, the more this anti-colonialism will express itself. Now, anti-colonialism is nothing but anti-capitalism. Because colonialism is nothing but an offshoot, an aspect of capitalism. Therefore, if you're anti-colonial, you must be anti-capitalist, if you're logical in your thinking, of course, and your actions. Some people are not, but we are speaking of logical people here. <laughs> if you're anti-capitalist, then you must be socialist. Capitalism cannot unite Africa. Africa has to be united by socialism. Now, there's a lot of confusion here on this question of capitalism and socialism. Just recently, a young man said to me, but socialism died. I said, it did. He said, you ain't hear about it. I said, I missed the funeral. <laughs> of course, he spoke about the betrayals that occurred in the East. You must not let capitalism confuse your thinking. This is a struggle which Pan-Africanism takes on. We struggle against imperialism in the illogical arena because many people think that capitalism just wants to exploit your labor. It wants to confuse your thinking and make you think just like them. And this is where the real fight occurs. So therefore, this struggle of confusing the thinking, I told the man, I said, you're talking nonsense. Socialism cannot uh, uh, disappear. It cannot die. He said, yes, it can. I said, no. He said, how do you say that? I said, well, you are judging uh, socialism by socialists. You don't do that. He said, I've never heard such nonsense. If you don't judge socialism by socialists, what do you judge it by? I said, you judge it by its principles. Every system is judged by its principles, never its adherence. So he still saw confusion. He said, you're just talking double talk. I said, okay, do you judge Christianity by Christians? 
So we must not be confused here. Socialism doesn't fall because of betrayal. No system does. The person who betrays themselves goes to the mud, but the system with its eternal principles keep marching on. If a system fell because of betrayal, Christianity would have been finished with Judas. At least Judas had the dignity to hang himself. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Some of these who betray socialism don't have that dignity. Gorbachev still runs around speaking and I'm picking up 30 pieces of silver everywhere. Yeah. So uh, socialism is an economic system. And there can only be two in the world, capitalism or socialism, because every economic system must answer one fundamental question. Who will own and control the wealth of the country? Who will own and control the means of production? The question can only be answered two ways. Either a few will own or everyone will own. It's as simple as that. And under capitalism, we say, please, please summarize that we might have. No, I'm going. I thought I had 20 minutes. It's my I thought I had 20 minutes. I was going by the clock. How much time do I have left? I'm sorry, maybe I'm off. That's what I thought I did. I was watching it. Now I'm watching my clock. I'm a responsible. I'm rev revolutionary. I go back to my clock. Matter of fact, I can say it in two words black power. <laughs> and today we've gone to one Pan Africanism. <laughs> yeah. So there are only two economic systems, and it's going to be capitalism or socialism. Capitalism is a backward system, there's no need to discuss it. Certainly anyone who's been made a slave by capitalism ought to be hesitant in trying to support the system. But as a conscious African, I must be against capitalism and I must, of course, seek to destroy it. So in, when you speak of Pan-Africanism, you must understand you speak of socialism. And we want to underline there's only one socialism out here, and that's scientific socialism, whose principles are abiding and universal. There's no such thing as African socialism, Chinese socialism, Russian socialism, Arab socialism. There's only one socialism. The confusion arises over ideology. That is that which guides you towards your objective. So we're saying clearly here, Pan-Africanism is not an ideology. It is an objective. It is an achievable. Pan-Africanism is the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. All we want is a unified continent with a socialist system. That's all. But you know Africa is the richest continent in the world. When she's properly organized, she'll be the most powerful. Yeah, of course. Of course, and me, all I want is power. <laughs> I'm not like others. I don't want money. I don't want popularity. I just want the power I'm supposed to get. That's all. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> Yeah.
Lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.